the strikes are really heating up. All kinds of reports about strikers being arrested, strikers wrecking passenger trains, lots of issues going on with the strikes. So this and much more from A Year of Crime is reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for the 31st of March, 1886. The destruction of property by some of the strikers on the Gould system cannot be too severely condemned, especially when life is endangered by it. The people of the United States, or a very large majority of them, sympathize with the working men and their desire to improve their condition by a decrease in the hours of labor and an increase of wages. But that sympathy cannot long survive the derailing of passenger trains as in Kansas yesterday. That sort of thing is to be classed with assassination and cowardly murder. This next report isn't exactly about a crime issue, but it does have to do with, with the age of consent. An earnest and timely effort is being made in Massachusetts to increase the legal age of consent for young girls to 18, or at least 16 years. The Baptist Ministers Association has joined the following bodies in petitioning the legislature to that effect. The Massachusetts Women's Temperance Union, the Teachers of the Bowden School of Boston, the National Woman's Suffrage Association of Massachusetts, the New England Moral Reform Society, the Moral Educational Association of Massachusetts. The women of the state should follow this example and take steps to secure the passage of an act next January raising the age of consent for young girls to at least 16. We should say 18. General Armstrong, principal of the Hampton Normal Institute, who has done so much for the education of Indians and Negroes, has been in New York with a review to secure additional aid for the support of his charges. Though assisted by the state as an agricultural college and by the national government, which pays at the rate of $167 for each 120 Indians, this school relies for the salaries of its 70 teachers and employees and for general expenses on outside help. About $50,000 is required annually, nearly one-half being raised by scholarship endowments of $70 each. The Evening Post, which has howled itself hoarse in opposition to the Blair Bill, commended General Armstrong's scheme to the public, and no doubt he has or will secure the needed sum. Strikers Arrested Warrants have been issued for the arrest of William McConnell and William Conroy striking Missouri Pacific employees charged with obstructing the passage of a Missouri Pacific passenger train on March 23rd. Judge Advocate McCreary of the Knights of Labor, who was arrested yesterday on the charge of trespassing on the company's property, was brought before the court this morning and was allowed to give bail pending a preliminary examination of the charges. Call for troops at East St. Louis. The following dispatch was sent this morning by Sheriff Robequite of St. Clair County, Illinois, to Governor Oglesby, but no reply has yet been received. East St. Louis, Illinois, March 30, 1886, to Governor Oglesby, Springfield, Illinois. Your dispatch was received too late for me to come to Springfield, and my state of health is impaired so much by late vigils that it is out of the question for me to go far from home. I called the posse at East St. Louis when the emergency occurred. Few persons responded and few will. There are nine yards here. There are fully 1,500 men determined that no freight train shall move. They respect no authority and seem to hold the state of Illinois in contempt. It is folly to think of moving freight trains here unless the state sends a strong force. All attempts to do so will result in failure and bring the authorities into further contempt. Engines have been killed this morning and the freight blockade is complete except as to the roads in the hands of United States Marshals. 
The strikers seemed to have a strong respect for the United States, but none for the state. Fred Robequite, Sheriff of St. Clair County, Illinois. Ordered to East St. Louis. A post-dispatch special from Springfield, Illinois, says Governor Oglesby has ordered 800 men, a section of artillery, and a Gatlin gun of the 4th and 5th Regiments of the Militia to hold themselves in instant readiness to proceed to East St. Louis. It is believed the force will be ordered to move this afternoon. In Texas, making up trains at Palestine. Palestine, Texas, March 30th. At 10 o'clock yesterday morning, Sheriff Davis, with 200 deputies, including deputized con con conductors, engineers, and trainmen, took possession of the railway yards and with Yardmaster Fanning and his assistants began to make up trains. While the force of strikers at this place lined Spring Hill from the post office corner to the railroad hotel, not the slightest attempt was made to resist the work of making up or running trains. Between 10 and 11 o'clock yesterday, three freight trains arrived from the south under guarded citizens from Elkhart and Sheriff Bain of Houston County. These are the first trains, with the exception of the regular passenger trains, that have arrived here in three weeks. At 12 o'clock, the first freight train to leave here in three weeks started out for Houston, and since then, eight long trains have gone north, south, and west. Except for trivial offenses, no arrests have been made, and no violence is anticipated. Trains are still being made up, and yesterday it was expected that by this morning the yards will be entirely cleared. All trains are running in charge of armed guards. In Kansas, passenger train wrecked near Parsons, Parsons, Kansas, March 30th. Passenger train number 154, northbound, was ditched five miles south of here, and the engine, mail car, and baggage car were thrown down the embankment. The mail car struck against the telegraph pole and broke it. The only one seriously hurt was mail agent Moore, who has been taken to his home at Osage Mission. The track will be cleared today. The wreck was caused by the fish plate being removed and the rails spreading. The fish plate was then spiked down so the rails could not possibly get to in their places, thereby making a wreck inevitable. Great indignation is manifested by our citizens at the perpetrators of the crime, and it is likely the guilty ones will be arrested and punished as the detectives have, have obtained some clues as to who the guilty parties are. Freight train wrecked at Kansas City, Kansas City, Missouri, March 30th. As a freight train of 20 cars was leaving Grand Avenue Depot this afternoon with policemen on board, two men turned the switch and 12 freight cars in the caboose were ditched and badly wrecked. They arrested one of the offenders named Martin Scow, but the other, John Nocknan of Sedalia, refused to halt and was shot in the hip by a police officer. The shooting has caused great excitement among strikers. Noonan, on being taken into custody, at first asserted he was a plasterer and happened to be passing and ran because he saw an officer chasing him. He weakened later, however, regarding his first statements. Noonan was a car inspector on the Missouri Pacific before the strike. His companion gives the name of Martin Leon. He confesses his part in the work. When asked why they did it, he said, Well, we couldn't stop it any other way, all the trains being loaded with police. The company is still moving its trains as before and without serious interference. A large crowd of strikers congregated at the yards this afternoon, but dispersed under the pressure of the police. Shot through the heart, Galveston, Texas, March 30th. A special to the news from Laredo says Alderman Henry Douglas was shot and killed yesterday morning in the commercial hotel by Alexander Minley of Corpus Christi. Minley and a young man named Burbanks had spent the night playing pinpool, Douglas watching the game. Early in the morning, they all repaired to the hotel bar, where a quarrel ensued between Minley and Burbanks. The former drew his revolver and fired. 
The bullet grazed Burbank's and passed through Douglas's heart. Minley was arrested. There was a great deal of excitement over the tragedy and threats of lynching are made. Douglas was from Pennsylvania and was one of the most popular railroad men in his section. Counterfeiting in the Kansas Penitentiary Leavenworth, Kansas, March 30th. There was considerable excitement in the neighborhood of the Kansas State Penitentiary last evening when it was discovered that a number of counterfeiter molds had been in use for some time by a couple of convicts and later having successfully made a number of bogus coins. A quantity of the latter, representing perhaps $6, was found in the cell of one of the convicts. The molds were accidentally discovered in the drying room of the laundry where the two convicts were employed. When examined, they said they had been assisted by some of the guards who procured materials for them and got rid of the spurious coins. They named two of the guards who had been suspended pending an investigation, but it is generally thought the guards are innocent. The counterfeiting has gone on for several weeks. Quiet and orderly at Atchison. Atchison, Kansas, March 30th. The strikers were quiet and orderly today. Four trains were sent out and two arrived, all under guard. The shops are started up this morning and operated all day. A detachment of deputy sheriffs standing guard at the door. Cannot move trains without militia at Parsons. Parsons, Kansas, March 30th. It is said Sheriff Woodford has telegraphed Governor Martin that he cannot move trains without militias, and if the strike is not settled, their aid will be asked and the call will be signed by many citizens. The Knights of Labor disclaim all knowledge of wrecking the passenger train and have offered a reward of $300 for the arrest of the guilty parties. A striker was shot at last night while prowling around the machine shops by one of the guards and was arrested but discharged with the admonition to keep away. Train detained at Kansas City, Kansas City, Missouri, March 30th. A Missouri Pacific passenger train that left here for St. Louis last evening was detained for half an hour between this city and Independence by obstructions which have been placed under the track. The engineer discovered the barrier in time to prevent an accident. The two strikers arrested for train wrecking this morning. Horrible murder in the Indian Territory, Fort Smith, Arkansas, March 30th. Another horrible Indian Territory murder was committed yesterday near Chacacto Station in the Cherokee Nation, and J.E. Richardson, another brave officer, was killed while attempting the arrest of a desperado. Richardson has been deputy marshal for the Western District of Arkansas since September, and a short time ago arrested Bill Pigeon, a notorious outlaw, charged with the murder of Joseph Rogers four years ago. Richardson left Pigeon with a posse and went away to make another arrest, and while away, Pigeon escaped. Yesterday, Richardson again attempted Pigeon's arrest, saying as he started out, I am afraid Pigeon will kill me or I will have to kill him, for he will resist till death. Marshal Carroll telegraphed Richardson's posse to bring the remains to Fort Smith to deceased wife. Every effort will be made to capture the murderer. Murder and Suicide at Paris Paris, March 30th Monsieur Massette, a chemist, today ended a quarrel with his mistress by shooting her dead and then killing himself. Both the parties were married. The tragedy has made a sensation because of the standing of the parties. Mademoiselle Sets is a daughter of a member of the Chamber of Deputies. Louisville, Kentucky, March 30th. The Law and Order Club served notice on pool rooms today to close up at once or the proprietors will be prosecuted under a new law which makes gambling a felony. The proprietors say they will obey the law but think the recently passed law does not apply to pool. It is thought that pool selling at the racetrack will not be interfered with. 
Cincinnati, Ohio, March 30th. Frank Dufar, director of the city infirmary, who has been on trial before the probate court for impeachment, was found today guilty and will be removed from office. His offense was allowing payment for fraudulent vouchers. He was also arraigned in another court today on four indictments based on his acts as director of the infirmary. His two fellow directors fled the city several weeks ago. This next article isn't exactly a crime, but seems like it could be. There's something here that's kind of weird about it. A Cowita yarn, which furnishes blood enough for several novels. Cowita, Georgia. Advertiser. For the past few days, there has been considerable excitement among those in the secret about the mysterious spirit manifestations in and about an old vacant house in suburban parts of the city. For some time, strange noises have been heard at different times of the night, resembling cries of a woman, the appeals of a child in distress, the dragging of chains, and the heavy footsteps of a man with occasional flashes of a red and blue light through the crack on the logs. We understand that during the war, several men and women mysteriously made their disappearance in the vicinity of this old building, and the impression is that these strange apparitions are nothing more nor less than the ghosts of the dead who were cruelly dealt with in the darkness days of the war. A great many people, both ignorant and intelligent, have always believed and still believe that ghosts inhabit old dilapidated buildings, and there are those who claim the power of seeing them when others cannot. One man, more brave than his neighbors, tells us that he has for the past week seen the form of a man, apparently about six feet high, with high cheekbones, long hair and teeth, walking in this building between sunset and dark, dragging over the floor a heavy chain which makes a hideous noise. Desiring to see whether it was a ghost or a live man, he walked up to the end of the house by the chimney and peeped through the opening. What he saw would make the blood congeal and the hair stand on end. He says the ghost was wrapped in a torn sheet. His arms and breast were bare. His, his eyes looked like fire, and a white and bluish blaze ran out of his mouth, reaching to the floor. In his right hand, he held a little child, whose face revealed the traces of the severest torture, and in his left hand was the head of a woman. On the floor sat two women with hair falling down over their bare shoulders, with the hatchet in their hands chopping what seemed to be the skull of an infant. In the corner sat an old negro tied to the floor with a rope, his eyes sunk in, and his legs cut off just below the knees. While he was watching the strange and mystic scene, a strain of soft yet sad music seemed to come up through the floor, accompanied by the sobs of an old woman. When the music ceased, the ropes dropped from the old man in the corner, the chains became unlocked from the ghost in the center of the room, and in an instant they all vanished into air. Frequent listeners will recall this report about O'Donnell, McMahon, and Manasco. Three of a kind, discharge of a trio of the hip pocket brigade, the closing chapter of the weird story of the late magistrate's elections. In the criminal court yesterday, Judge Douglas ordered the discharge of Mike McMahon and V.A. Rawlings without trial upon payment of cost. About two weeks ago, there was an election held for Magistrate Matt M. McMahon and H. Butenberg were rival candidates for Magistrate. Dan O'Donnell, engineer at the courthouse, espoused Butenberg's cause. McMahon abused him for it, and O'Donnell knocked him down. McMahon left him and returned with his friend Manasco, who was killed by O'Donnell while in the act of beating him with his fist. McMahon, at the same moment O'Donnell fired, started to level his pistol, but it was snatched from his hands by Sheriff Cannon. Earlier in the day, there were scenes almost equally inspiriting about the polls. A man named Madden took possession of the gangway and was finally arrested with a pistol.
The same day, Rollins, who, was, who with Madden, Manasco, and others espoused McMahon's cause, was also arrested by a policeman whom he abused in a pistol taken from at the station house. Madden, McMahon, and Rollins all carried pistols under their license as special deputy sheriffs. In the police court, they were all fined. In the criminal court, Madden had his trial first. His, his, he pled guilty to carrying a pistol, and Judge Douglas refused to hear the testimony of the policeman as to his outrageous conduct. He discharged him on account of his special deputation. Yesterday, McMahon and Rollins were discharged without trial. So endeth the chapter. Shooting a fray in a store at Michigan City, Mississippi, near Grand Junction. The little town of Michigan City, Mississippi, six miles south of Grand Junction on the Illinois Central Railroad, was the scene of a lively fuselage last Friday morning. It was the shooting of Captain Larkin McKenzie, a planter and moneylender by the well-known and highly esteemed O.E. Oakley, also a planter, and engaged with his brother-in-law, H.W. Hordaway, merchandising at the above place. The cause of the difficulty, as reported in this paper, is that Mr. Oakley had, in the absence of his brother-in-law, taken steps and secured a debt that was about to be lost, and in which Captain McKenzie had lost the chance of securing one he held against the same party. Entering Oakley's store, McKenzie declared that he should have allowed him to share in the garnishment against the party. Being refused the privilege, he became very wrathy and abusive, cursing him so that Oakley requested him to desist and remember what he was doing, telling him that as a man of his age, he should have some consideration about him. Going away for a little while, he soon returned, but only to curse and be more violent, and again being told by Mr. Oakley that he would not and could not allow him to talk to him that way, he pulled his pistol and with an oath fired. It was returned and kept up for three or four rounds, the captain falling wounded in three or four places, while Mr. Oakley was not hit. The captain was supposed to be mortally wounded, but upon examination was found to have suffered but slight injuries. Mr. Oakley came to the city, where he has relatives, not that he was a refugee, having given bond before he left, but that he might be saved the necessity of a difficulty with the captain's sons, as the captain himself advised him to leave. The latest reports are that the captain is getting better fast, and Mr. Oakley has returned to his home. The police court. The principal case is tried in that tribunal yesterday. John Thomas Prowling was discharged. Robert Hall, larceny, was bound over to the state. Henry Williams, larceny and vagrancy, was fined $25 and bound over. Tom Avant, vagrancy, was discharged with strict orders to go to work. J.R. Pendergrass, violating house number ordinance, discharged. Henry Smith, larceny, case continued until tomorrow. Dick Hart, an escaped convict, was remanded to jail to await the tr arrival of the penitentiary agent. West Mackey, violating house number ordinance, was discharged. Charles Sparks, vagrancy, was discharged. C. Williams, violating house number ordinance, was discharged. William Thompson, violating house number ordinance, was fined $2 in cost. Taylor Cheatham, larceny and vagrancy, was fined $25. D.W. Voorhees, vagrancy and swindling, was fined $25. Fred Stockman, embezzlement, continued until tomorrow. The Bolivar Bulletin on the Carrollton Massacre. Good people are all over our sister state for the sake of her good name abroad should arise and see that the perpetrators of this great outrage upon injustice and the laws of the state are promptly prosecuted and punished for their crime. Columbia Herald. No arrest in Mississippi yet of any of the murderers who have made the name of Carrollton a byword and a reproach to the entire state. This next section is titled City News. 
Strange to say, the child murderous Comfort Walker has not yet been apprehended. Miss Emma Norman will be tried in the criminal court today for the shooting of Henry Arnold. The trial promises to be a sensational one. That's the crime news for the 31st of March, 1886. Quick note, I just really appreciate you listening and going on this journey with me to look at the crime news that occurred in 1886, the year in which Eliza Woods was lynched in Jackson, Madison County, Tennessee. Please join me again for another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.